1: Warning, this episode contains graphic descriptions of traumatic burn, injuries, and recovery. This is the Grace Enough podcast, and I am your host, Amber Cullum. Today's guest is Senator Brian Birdwell. More than likely, when I say 9-11, your mind goes back to your exact location on that fateful morning. Maybe you remember who you were with or specific conversations you had, or what you were wearing. Well, today's guest was an employee at the Pentagon on that fateful morning when Flight 77 purposefully crashed into the building. Brian was walking out of the restroom when he turned to go down the hallway and Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon, blowing him down the hallway and engulfing him in flames. Today, he shares his story with us and how his September 11th experience and his faith in Christ impacts his work as a senator. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that this episode may be too heavy, too traumatic for you to listen to. I also want to invite you to download 10 Scripture Prayers to Calm Your Anxious Heart. Not because this episode increases your anxiety, but because a lot is going on in our world and scripture can really help refocus our attention on the only one who knows all, sees all, and remains faithful. Go to graceenoughpodcast.com to get your free download today. Now let's begin this week's conversation with Senator Brian Birdwell, 9-11 survivor of the Pentagon. Good afternoon, Senator Birdwell. Thank you so much for being on the Grace Enough podcast.
2: My treat, Amber. Thank you for having me today.
1: Absolutely. It is my pleasure. I'm looking forward to just hearing more of your story. But first, um, I do like to give my listeners a little bit of an idea of who you are, a little about your family, and let them know what you do on a day-to-day basis.
2: I am uh, uh, currently serving as a state senator, and in the political world, my wife, Mel, that drives her nuts, uh, (laughs) as you can imagine, what uh, life is like in the political world. We've been married now a little over 30 years, have one son, Matt, um, and uh, uh, a daughter-in-law, Anne Marie. Uh, They got married in 2015. We've got two grandkids, Uh, Elijah's uh, gonna turn four this January and Lily will turn uh, two here in just a a week or two. And so uh, it's fabulous to be able to have them in our lives because with what we're gonna talk about, there are Mm -hmm. so many things that between September 11th and now 20 years later, Mm -hmm. that for a period of time we believed would happen with Mel as a widow, and and I wouldn't be in the picture with major life events that have occurred since then.
1: Absolutely. And
2: so, uh, and one of those major life events is is serving as a state senator in Texas. That does keep me busy, um, but I enjoy the work. Uh, my military career changed me for for uh, just that occasion um, in various ways. But uh, the sense of selfless service, and that you know your customers the constituents, and ultimate power belongs to the uh, the citizens of the state of Texas, and I get a portion from my district to represent them for the decisions that the state has to make. And so much of what the military taught me about uh, senior subordinate relationships and proper authority and the proper role and function of government helped me serve to the best of my ability. And I think I'd do a pretty good job of that if I may be so bold.
1: (laughs) Well, so how long did you serve in the military?
2: 20 years, one month and 19 days. Not that I was counting, but you get a, <laughs> uh, you get a, a service calculation when you retire. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of my injuries from September 11th, you know, I wanted to be that guy that that served for 30 years, mm-hmm. maybe retire as a full colonel. Uh, but then at, upon retirement from the military, you know, get the RV and drive around the country. <laughs> but uh, I was blessed to, to get to 20 years um, cause there was some concern that I wouldn't even get to that, but, mm. uh, we got to 20 years, was able to, to retire. And then, uh, Mel and I operated a ministry for burn survivors and wounded servicemen and women for a while. Yeah. But as I got into political office and gained more seniority and time, the ability to do both, uh, became, uh, more and more difficult. Yeah. So Mel and I, we closed down our ministry back in 2017 uh, it, had, it had run its course. Its season of life uh, yeah. called Face Fire Ministries for again for critical uh, burn survivors, wounded servicemen and women. But we enjoyed it. Uh, certainly difficult when you're you know going back into burn units and visiting people. But yeah. but uh, that also helped prepare Mel and I for public service in the capacity we're in now.
1: Yeah. And then does your son and grandkids live nearby?
2: They do. Um, Good. Uh, we live, uh, uh, you have to cross two county lines to get there. So they're not terribly far away. They're about uh, 35 minutes away. That's perfect. Um, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, uh, except in a COVID world. Um, well,
1: true story. But,
2: but they're, uh, they're close and, you know, we do our best to make sure that they, uh, you know, that we give them their space and, mm-hmm. and such like that. But, uh, you know, hopefully pretty soon uh, I'll get to, uh, you know, as Elijah gets a little bit older. Right. Uh, just another year or two, you know, start to, you know, here's how you bait the hook, and here's, you know, that's right. <laughs> and then, and then while he's got the hook out, you know, I'll throw the grenade in the water so that, you know, uh, I'm just teasing, but, but, uh, so make sure we guarantee you're going to get a fish, you know, kind of thing. that's
1: right. You have but, to do that uh, with the little ones to keep their oh, attention. Yeah. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. And Lily, she's her own walk in combat zone. Um, she is quite the little tomboy, just, you know, nothing nothing phases her. So, uh, so I look forward to when I can take them both out on the boat and get a little fishing in and, and do those things that, uh, that I didn't get to do with, with grandfathers.
1: Oh yeah. Such a gift.
2: Matt didn't either. So wow. we're trying to break the cycle. So yeah.
1: Yes. Cause it is a gift. Oh, I have such great memories with all four of mine. So it's really a gift, but take us back. Um, tell me a little bit about your faith journey. And when you came to know Jesus,
2: I grew up in a very godly home. My uh, my parents divorced when I was less than a year old, and I love both my father and my my stepfather. My mom remarried a great godly gentleman. That uh, about four years after, uh, well, I guess when about when I was four, maybe maybe a little younger than that. So I, memory's not mm-hmm. really clear back that far, but at age 10 in 1971 uh, was at uh, and we'd grown up in the church, but I had reached that age of understanding, uh, recognized that in my sinful state before a holy God, I needed to reconcile myself to him. And the only way to do that was through the, uh, the sacrifice of his uh, of His son Christ on the cross, made that recon- recognition and reconciliation, accepted the Lord as my savior. And, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. And from 71 on, you know, the ups and downs of life, uh, some, and sometimes, you know, military career, there were some some low points and then some yeah. high points and, and things of that nature. Uh, met Mel, we got married, uh, had uh, Matthew, our son, uh, about two and a half years, I think it was two and a half years after we got married. And since scripture says that, you know, blessed is a man who has many children, they're like arrows in the quiver. <laughs> since Matt was uh, a nuclear tipped qu- uh, arrow, we, you know, we stopped at one. Um, but, uh, one of the challenges in the military is with the, the constant moving, mm-hmm. um, could be as often as a year, depending upon whether it's schooling, uh, or less than that, you could yeah. go to some place for six months for school, whether it's your chapel or your church experience can widely vary. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we were in, in, uh, D.C., our family experience with our church at Emanuel Bible there in, in Springfield was just incredible. Mm. Um, it was the, the best of both worlds. You know, I had a pretty good job in the Pentagon there. There's a lot of jobs that, you know, are, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the scale of one to 10, there are one, you know, but our, our family life other than the commute was really, uh, was really good at that mm. time. Matt's, you know, growing up and, and uh, he's in uh, sixth, seventh grade. We're enjoying our time in the church, mm. active, active with it. September 11th comes along. And because of that relationship with the church, I mean, you know, I was just one, one person out of 5,000 people going to that church. Uh, but that church rallied around Melanie and I and Matt, mm. we had friends that were in our, our adult Bible fellowship, the Vance's that their two boys and Matt were becoming very good friends. And then uh, in the immediate aftermath that day, the September 11th, the day, and then for a couple of months after, the Vances kept Matt because mm-hmm. Mel just could not do. And that's not a statement of her capacity. It's just the volume of, of no, she, could not right. be, she could not be mom and, husband and wife in that circumstance at and the same caregiver. time. And caregiver Walt, yes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so the Vance's, um, I mean, that's what really broke Mel's heart more than anything was, was not being able to, just too much to consume. Matt was 12 at the time. Mm-hmm. So while he understood, you know, it, it was hard for Mel to uh, to, hey, dad's in such a circumstance, I've got to pay attention here it's you know, a hard thing. You're going to stay with the Vances. And, and so the, the whole church family rallied around us. Um, there was one other family that, that was directly impacted. He was, he was killed. So after the remains and and such, you know, and, and they moved back to Mississippi, um, our church rallied around us. And, mm. uh, I mean, they brought Thanksgiving dinner to the hospital and, and uh, it was really just what, what the Lord calls us to be in, in being service to our, our, uh, our fellow believers, our fellow man.
1: It is amazing how the body of Christ, when you go through a traumatic experience or really just any kind of loss, uh, if they rally around you, it, it really yeah. opens your eyes to um, yeah. just how much we need community. But I yeah. want to talk about the morning of 9-11 You know, you were working in the Pentagon and you were standing in an office with two colleagues. I know you've told this story a million times, but you all were watching the World Trade Centers burn. And so will you take us through kind of what happened that morning? Sure. Yeah. And the best of your ability, obviously.
2: Um, Normally, there are six of us in the in the front office. I worked for a flag officer. And we had two chief executives or two executives that we, that, uh, that we were working for. Major General Van Antwerp was our two-star, uniformed, uh, military primary staff officer. And then Jan Minnig was the deputy. She was an SES-5, which is a two-star equivalent, but she's on the civilian flag officer side. Colonel Williams was General Van Antwerp's aide. He was a full colonel. And I was Jan's aide. And then we had two secretaries and then uh, which is Cheryl and Clara. And then we had um, Sandy. Sandy was our our, uh, administrative traffic cop, for lack of a better term. Uh, Praise God for those people. Oh, yeah. yeah. But what are all the taskings out there? What, yes. you know, what's going where and who's got to send what to whom? And the vice chief needs this and the DAS needs that. And, the, you know, and yes, it takes a year just to learn all the acronyms. <laughs> i had been in the army 17 years when I arrived at the Pentagon and it was a completely new language. Um, but Clara was on on leave. Miss uh, Miss Minnick's secretary. And so it's just General Van Antwerp, Miss Minnig, Colonel Williams, myself, Cheryl and Sandy. So Colonel Williams gets General Van Antwerp and Miss Minnig over to the Doubletree, the hotel that's across 395 from the Pentagon in Crystal City there, because we were hosting the Garrison Commanders Conference. And then I, Cheryl and Sandy settled in for what we thought would be a slow day. Sandy's daughter, Sam, works up in New York, in New York City, and about nine o'clock calls Sandy. Says, hey, mom, turn the TV on. The World Trade Center's been hit by a plane. Sandy hangs up the phone, and is like, yeah, Sam just called me. Told, you know. So we did what you and we all and did. Mm-hmm. Every other American were doing, whether you were already at work or you know your car radio yep. in the commute or or getting up and on the West Coast and watching what's going on. And so we went into Miss Minig's office, turned on the TV, and the three of us, you know, you can see that first tower. Uh, the North Tower, the one with the antenna mast,
0: mm-hmm. that's
2: already been hit. And you see this huge gaping hole, the, the black smoke. Yeah. And just that little voice in the back of our mind going, you know, as beautiful a weather it is. Mm-hmm. And even though we hadn't had the Captain Sullenberger experience yet of landing that U.S. air flight out in the Hudson, right. that thought process is there that says, you know, if I've got a catastrophic failure, either at departure or on approach, I'm going to do everything in my power To put that thing out in the water and avoid Mm -hmm. more death. And so I was thinking that on live TV, watch the the second Second plane make impact uh, at nearly 600 miles an hour into the South Tower. And that would confirm that that the first was no accident. Mm -hmm. I knelt down with Cheryl and Sandy and just we said a quick prayer that just Lord, we love our first responders, but recognizing that it's the largest office buildings in the Mm -hmm. most constricted city in the world. Um, or at least in the United States, that the bulk of the life saving is going to be your doing today. And so just having all those first responders in his hands, all those, particularly the people above the crash sites in the buildings with no thought that that we were next. And it was quiet. Um, you know, granted, we're just the, you know, the city manager people, so right. to speak, but no phone ringing. Yeah, nothing. Just very quiet in the building. And around uh, 9.35, having had my morning Coke that morning.
1: I love that uh, it's Coke and not coffee.
2: <laughs> well, I, yes, ma'am. And uh, I like the smell of coffee, but not the taste. But um, I'd had about seven o'clock when I got into the building and, and you know, I'm at the desk and in uniform, um, I'd had my Coke, but it was now time to head to the gentleman's room told Sandy and Cheryl, I was going to step out to the men's restroom and that I'd be back momentarily. And, and those are the last words that I would speak to my two coworkers when I stepped out. And so that your, your listeners have a, a clear visual. If you, if you look at that portion of the Pentagon from the outside, that crumbles my office the E ring is the outer ring of the Pentagon. So that's the one that the plane makes initial penetration into, and it penetrates three of the five rings, the E, the D, and the C. The A ring is the innermost ring, the E ring, the outermost ring. My window from where it shears off cleanly on the left-hand side is four windows over from where it shears off cleanly. When I went to the men's restroom, I stepped out into the E ring hallway. So the E ring, the hallway is in the middle of the ring, and then there's offices on two on each side of the hallway. Our side of the hallway is the one that you have a good window view of DC, not Mm -hmm. a window view of the D-ring.
1: Right, right. (laughs) So,
2: so, but I step into that hallway and I walk through what would eventually be the impact point and what would collapse. So I went through there, got up to the fourth quarter where the men's restroom is there at the intersection of the fourth quarter and the E-ring, took care of business, came out. I'm about seven or eight steps out, and I'm about to turn right back into what will collapse.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: Right as Flight 77 makes impact. So I'm 15 to 20 yards from an 80-ton jet making penetration of the building at 530 miles an hour with about 3,000 gallons of its jet fuel load (sighs) still remaining when it it makes impact. You do not survive this, Amber, because the United States Army made me the toughest guy in that building. Mm-mm. You survive it because the toughest person to ever walked this earth in, in the form of man still sits at the right hand of the father and is interceding in our lives. Mm-hmm. And
0: he I am here because of the you. great
2: physician. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, through. he believes in catch and release. And so he threw me back. Um, <laughs> so, and so I hear the sound of the impact and part of the building was still going through uh, renovation. So we had moved in. Yeah just a couple months before, but the, the wedge wasn't completely finished. And so you'd hear, you know, heavy equipment, but this, I mean, I I can't imagine. I had 10 of my, 10 of my 20 years I spent as an artillery officer. Um, so I've been around a lot of loud things in my life, but nothing as loud as hearing that sound. And in that nanosecond, I, I thought bomb. And in the next nanosecond, I am tossed around like a rag doll with the the concussion the vacuum the the blast oh my gosh i am blown up against the the opposite wall in the in the corridor set ablaze and it's it's what you would expect when you when you think of the terms in scripture of the twinkling of an eye and the sounding of the trumpet i mean it's instantaneously light to dark instantaneously deafening and then in those moments i would experience three pains and, and emotions. First time set a blaze, uh, I'm burned on, uh, my total body injury, external injury was a 60% total body burn with about 40% being 30 degree burns. But my most immediate life-threatening injury was my inhalation injury because I'm breathing in yeah. the aerosolized. I mean, it, I smell like a gas station when right. I get to the, get to the Georgetown university hospital emergency room. So on my exterior injuries, my arms from fingertip to armpit on both arms are completely circumferentially <sighs> grafted. My, my eyes, uh, the eye, lower eyelids, the, the forehead, my ears are artificial cartilage. I used to have a ton of keloid. If you look closely, you can see mm-hmm. not the keloid, but the line, the scar line. Yeah. Where Dr. Cohen had to go in because shaving used to be a, a dangerous event.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: uh just because it's you know trying to run a flat razor over the rocky mountains was right you know was dangerous so all that had to be flattened out but the backs of my legs my back um uh, my arms facial area and then the the scarring that comes from the donor sites so i'm i'm scarred more than just what was burned. burned i'm scarred right. with, with how you have to take graft spot you know yep. donor sites to graft and and the like the second pain and emotion is the one that that really defines terrorism. And that's the sense of panic that grabs your heart. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: When you realize you are facing a life threatening injury, and you cannot escape the source of that injury. You know, the Lord knits every one of us in our mother's womb with that zest for life or call it Mm -hmm. survival instinct. And I, you know, I'm struggling to get up uh, because of the damage to my inner ear balance from that. The, the sounds,
1: yeah, the deafening the sound.
2: The concussion of that explosion. Uh, I mean, it's amazing that my hammer, anvil, and stirrup still mm-hmm. function. Now, my hearing is is very poor. But the balance to the, the cochlea, yeah. my ability to get up. Uh, I get to all fours, but I, I never do stand up. And And at this juncture, stop, drop, and roll is irrelevant because with the, the damage done to the building, the lights are out. The only thing I can see is the in, in front of me, there is this yellow, orangish you know, haze or blob. And then in the periphery, it's black because the lights are out, the building material that has been sprayed everywhere. I mean, it, it's miraculous. I didn't have any puncture wounds from any of the, uh, yeah. the building debris flying.
1: Well, how how did you get to a place where you were no longer burning?
2: Well, I eventually did what we were in the military and never trained to do, and that's I quit, I gave up, yeah, screamed out, you know, Jesus, I'm coming to see you in a very loud voice, collapsed to the floor and accepted that I was going to die that day. And I went from the calamity of the of the trying to survive. So mm-hmm. the peace and quiet of knowing where I would spend eternity mm. uh, as I lay there, the damage done to the building when the plane comes through is massive and one of the things that's it's damaged the plane's damaged is all the water pipes that carry water for the sprinkler system. but I had collapsed not only under a an intact sprinkler head wow but also there was sufficient water pressure because in fact when the Pentagon, has to be rebuilt you've got a small area of structurally compromised from the impact a larger area of burn area of the pentagon but the largest area the biggest reason for most of the pentagon that had to be taken out and rebuilt was because of flooding oh, But there was, yeah. Sufficient, yeah. there was sufficient water pressure to extinguish the flame that was consuming me and as i lay there waiting to feel that feeling of the soul departing the body you know, in my sinfulness, I'm, you know, come on, Lord, let's get on with this thing. I mean,
0: yeah. I would want
2: everybody that at their moment of death is ready for this, just as, just as I was. And it, and it was that ready in the sense that the peace and quiet of knowing I would, you know, where I'd spend eternity. There was no, oh, my gosh, where am I, you know, where am I going? Mm-hmm. That third pain was thinking about Mel and Matt and how that mm-hmm. morning I'd, when I'd said goodbye was the, the final time. As I lay there, that feeling never came. I could feel liquid running down the left side of my face. Wow. And the sprinkler system had engaged and extinguished the flame that's consuming me. But as I open my eyes, I don't know what's done that. I'm still in somewhat a shock in the sense that yeah. I can feel that, but but that feeling wasn't coming. So I opened my eyes, and there's still just debris and other, you know, stuff around me, some that's burning, but in the distance, it'd be like a, uh, a ship at sea that you can't see the, the lighthouse bulb, but you can see the effect of the lighthouse on the surface of the water. Right. Down toward the A-ring, that inner ring of the building. I mean, I didn't know where I was. I mean, I knew the general area, but I had no idea of directional control. Right. So I opened my eyes and I can see at a great distance down the length of the, the corridor, The I can't see the lights because of the smoke that's filling up the ceiling, but I can see the reflection off the tile floor in the distance. Mm. So I now have directional control. I use the wall that I've been blown up against to put a third and fourth point of contact, you know, my hands up. Right. As I'm walking, I shouldn't say walking, staggering is the, I mean, this was a shuffle. Wow. As I'm shuffling down that hallway, using the wall to balance myself, I'm going from darker toward lighter Mm -hmm. the smoke is thicker to less thick and eventually i can see the damage done to my body my eyes are already swelling shut and i cover about 25 30 yards in this condition when four men bill mckinnon roy wallace john davies and chuck knoblock come out of the b-ring door into the corridor because they're coming to to try to rescue or see if they can find survivors because the plane cuts into the pentagon at about a 45 degree diagonal and so they're cut off from some of their the b-ring isn't impacted but they're going to try to get into the c-ring area to see you know where some of their colleagues are
0: that
2: that may be injured roy sees me coming out of the smoke and says hey guys we got one out here and in my exhaustion of covering 25 30 yards in that condition of My leather belt is still on me. My leather shoes are still on me. And I've got pieces of my clothing still in there, still on me. But most of my clothing is gone. It's just best to tell your your listeners Mm. that I'm greatly indisposed is probably the best way to, to politely describe it. I collapse in front of Roy, knowing that I'm about to subordinate myself to whatever the four of them are going to do for me. They each grab a limb and give that first exertion to pick me up and I don't come with them. They pull chunks off of me. It's my first insight into how much pain that is, is ahead of me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I begin yelling at them to leave me alone. And in my heart, I know I'm, I'm telling them Amber to leave like me here you to die. die. Mm-hmm. Cause touching me is just agonizing. Chuck is the biggest of the four of them. Chuck rolls me over on the left-hand side Ooh. And then forcibly puts his arms underneath my the left side of my torso. And in doing so, what Bill, Roy, Chuck, and John essentially do is shake hands with each other. Rather than grasping me, right. they're okay. gripping each other's arms with my body weight resting on their arms.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: They carry me through that B-ring door into their office area where there's a pathway to get to the A-ring. And then in the A ring, they walk me down to the fifth intersection of the fifth and sixth quarter, where I'll receive my first medical care from a, a great Air Force doctor named John Baxter. I'll receive a morphine uh, injection in the right foot, an IV in the left foot. And the reason it's the feet mm-hmm. is because I'm charred, I'm burnt, I, my my blood that's charred, and then all the black soot and crap that I was in. Mm. He takes my shoes off to find the the veins in the top of my feet. And so Dr. Baxter administers uh, the morphine in the IV, a wonderful lady from the Navy staff, Natalie Ogletree. When everybody's getting out of the building, she grabs her Bible. She's coming down the, the staircase. I don't know her. She doesn't know me, but she just feels led to kneel down beside me. And I am, trembling i i do not have control of my yeah physical i still have my mental faculties but yeah your
1: temperature regulation in your body is probably now just totally whacked
2: and natalie told us it was like you know it was like looking at the steak you take off the grill i mean i don't i'm not trying to be we're not trying to be graphic but it's it's just
1: telling the truth
2: i mean it's how do i say this um you know, I'm am an, an army tough guy, you know, kind of thing. But it took me, when Passion of the Christ came out, even though you know it's, yeah, it's Hollywood makeup on Jim Caviezel,
0: mm-hmm. I
2: couldn't watch it. Yeah. Um, it took me, yeah, five or six years to be able to watch Passion of the Christ because, as visual as my injuries were, particularly not on that day, but as I'm recovering yeah. in the hospital and what they're having to do to me, I just I. I can't well, imagine. and a lot of
1: people who have never experienced burns don't really even know that, like, I mean, debridement of wounds is yeah. excruciating because they basically scrub you down because that's they,
2: what... They sh- scrub you in bleach.
1: And they have to do that in order for new skin to grow. And it's a very, very, it, very painful experience.
2: It is. I mean, it's 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 like when you had that cut on your finger, you know, you're, you're a mom, I'm sure, you know, you put rubbing. Well, and I a was a hormone. physical
1: therapist, so I didn't oh, care. Oh, and
2: I can't believe I accepted this interview with a physical therapist. Um, <laughs>
1: hey, that's why P- you're walking again. No,
2: I'm that's right. Yeah. PT stands for pain tolerance. Okay. It does not My husband for- says pain and torture. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, all the, uh, all the physical therapists, I know their favorite breakfast cereal was rice Krispies because all they want to hear is the snap, the crackle and the pop. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm, um, I'm lovingly teasing you here, Amber, but I've heard it so many times. It really is tough love, but, but that, you know, that cut you get and you put rubbing alcohol on it. Well, you're, we don't normally think of the, the skin as an organ, but it is your largest organ in the body. And it's your first line of defense in your immune system. So when it's compromised, they're cleansing you and it's, it's like that cut that you put the rubbing alcohol on that burns, but it's 60% of your body rather That's than right. a, a, a single cut. And then the nurses take a wash rag because the the body peels like an onion. Mm-hmm. What's, a, what's dead today or what's alive today mm-hmm. will be dead tomorrow. What's alive tomorrow will be dead the day after. Mm-hmm. So your body is over a period of time sloughing off what can't be sustained with blood flow. So you're right. It is absolutely agonizing. I'm placed on the, on the body board after, uh, Natalie, we say the the Lord's prayer in the 23rd Psalm together. Mm. In fact, Dr. Baxter asked me my name. He gives me the, and then he puts a toe tag on my, on my, my right foot. And while I was in the hallway burning, that seemed like an eternity, but in this evacuation it seemed, it took about 45, 50 minutes, but it seems to go lickety split. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just, I can't believe 45 minutes has passed. Wow. Um, but I get taken out to uh, uh, the North parking side of the building. They take the gurney off the, the golf cart. They keep putting, they go out to the parking lot. Hopefully that an ambulance will come out there and they can just get me in and, and get me somewhere but ambulances weren't forthcoming cuz the crash site's actually closer to the south side parking so all the ambulances are going over there north parking is oh a little harder gosh. to get to you got to know where you're going to get there kind of thing and so there's a uh, an army captain he was actually supposed to sign in that day it was his first day of duty at the pentagon what a first day of duty at the pentagon Whoa. yeah um and so basically throw his golf clubs and bags or whatever you know he had in the back of his his ford expedition they put my bodyboard in there. The nurse that hops in with wow. me, Jill Hyson, is on her two weeks of annual training. She's an Air Force nurse, but she normally works at Georgetown University Hospital. That's the only hospital she knows how to get to. Wow. The other thing is when they the folks in the parking lot load me in the back of that Ford. That's when Major John Collison, one of my co-workers, worked in a different part of the building. He didn't recognize me because I'm, like mm-hmm. I said, um, Bill McKinnon, Bill and I were were uh, classmates at Fort Leavenworth at Commander General Staff College. But until I tell Dr. Baxter my name, he doesn't know who he's carrying. Wow. The um, same thing with with, uh, with John. And so John sees the toe tag, gets in the back with me to go to, to Georgetown. And so we go to Georgetown University Hospital. They've already given the, the, the word to get ready for a mass casualty exercise. Dr. DeSimone is with his team for triage out front, car pulls up, you know, the expedition pulls up and he looks at me and goes, I don't need to triage him, get him inside, he's critical. The attending physician inside the emergency room is Dr. Michael Williams. And before he arrived at Georgetown, because it's a teaching hospital, he was going Mm -hmm. to be a, he's a train wreck doctor and teaches people how to deal with train wrecks. Well, but he, yeah, he got one, right? (laughs) He got one. And thing is to get that training, he went over to the, he was in a two-year trauma fellowship under the direction of Marion Jordan and James Jang at the Washington hospital centers, regional burn unit. Wow! So from, from the perspective of emergency room care that's available to me throughout the DC area, I've got the third best burn doctor available to me. And that's critical because once the, Flight 77 makes penetration of the Pentagon. Vice President Cheney to tells Secretary, Secretary of Transportation Mineta to shut down all airspace in the United States. And so I'm going to stay at Georgetown. Normally, it's airway, breathing, and circulation. Once those are stabilized, you get evacuated to specialized care. But I'm not going to get evacuated for about five hours. Mm-hmm. So he begins what you were describing, the escharotomy, the debridement process, the excisions. Where, you know, as your body is exploding like an overinflated balloon, they've got a, kind of like the, the first Rocky movie where Apollo Creed's pounded his face so much.
0: Mm-hmm. And he says,
2: Mick, cut me, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to, to relieve the pressure. That's what's happening. He's having to oh make, gosh. link the incisions in the arms, the legs, the back.
1: Mm-hmm. To um, let the pressure out.
2: To let, to let the, yes, ma'am. And then rehydrate me with more fluid and, and the like. At what point did your wife show up? She got there about four o'clock that afternoon. She knew that that Mel knew that that was my side of the building because of the helipad. When we had moved from the wedge that was next to be renovated, they moved us to the newly renovated wedge Mm. to make room in the wedge that was going to be next. Right. And so being the junior ranking man, you know, uh, I'm a lieutenant colonel, but I'm just the chief donut getter in the office, if you know what I mean. Um, so that on a Saturday in July, I guess it was before September 11th, Mel went with me on that Saturday to the Pentagon, went in and I got Miss Minning's office situated because we, unlo- you know, unloaded boxes and, and my own desk and all that because I needed to work on Monday, not be unpacking on Monday. So I had to do the unpacking on the weekend. Well, Mel remembers it raining on the helipad looking out at, from the office. So when she sees the television and that side of the building and she sees the helipad, she doesn't know which window's mine, but she knows it's this oh is not gosh. a good thing. A couple hours later, after the initial impact at the Pentagon, uh, Natalie's husband, Mark, Natalie, the lady that prayed with me with, yeah. her, with her Bible, had, had gotten a hold of Mark given Mark the phone number I'd given, you know, call Mel, call Mel. Here's the number, um, that I'd given to Natalie. Mark calls Mel and phones are just jammed up that day, as you can imagine. So that's part of the reason it it took so long. Mark calls Mel and says, you know, my wife was with your husband. He's badly injured and they've taken him to, to Georgetown university hospital. So Mel, I don't know if it's Internet or what, but she, you know, finds Georgetown's emergency room, Mm -hmm. says this is, you know, Mrs. Birdwell. I understand my husband was was taken there. Dr. Williams is put on the phone, says your husband's critical. Mm -hmm. You need to get here as quickly as you can. And of course, she knows what that means. And that's when Mrs. Mrs. Vance arrived um, uh, because Mel had spoken to her and says, I don't know that I can do this by myself. Yeah. So Debbie had come over just to be with Mel as they'd watch the news coverage. And so when she gets there, she's like, I got to get to Georgetown. She takes Matt. Right. Um, and uh, one of our friends that uh, our neighbors was a Sergeant major that was stationed at Fort Belvoir. Um, he takes her to George to the key bridge. Uh, but they've got traffic closed off going into mm-hmm. DC. She crosses the bridge on foot, eventually gets there at about four o'clock.
0: Oh my this, gosh.
2: I mean this. Oh yeah, and I mean this is just the Lord putting all the right people Mm -hmm. at the right time. And that commute, I mean, people driving into D.C. I mean, it took.
1: I can't imagine.
2: Yeah, and and they're listening to the the local uh, uh, D.C. news talk station, and they're giving updates of hospital
1: numbers and
2: casualty counts. Oh wow. And it's you know Anova Fair Fairfax, and that two hours went from you know five to eleven, and other mm. hospitals, and it's always Georgetown one, Georgetown one. Wow! And you know I had that entire hospital's undivided attention. Wow! And that's so really many surprising. Yes, but, well, it's in a. It, I think it's actually the closest hospital to the Pentagon, but because I got out of the building relatively quickly to other people and the, the DC police and the state Virginia, Virginia state police have shut the bridges down. Okay. And so nobody's getting, so we, I'd already gotten over there before the, the, the bridges were shut down. I mean, Mel tells the story. Great. She eventually gets there. There's a Catholic priest uh, that, is greets her when she gets to the emergency room with Dr. Williams, Dr. Simone, and, and then one of the uh, nursing, uh, emergency room nursing staff. They give give her a brief, you know, and she's like, okay, I need to gather myself. You know, she mm-hmm. washes her face real quick. She asks the priest for a Bible. Um, she goes to, uh, to scripture with the, the priest. She's taken upstairs to their ICU. Again, this is one of the, the, the nurses in the cardiac ICU is what Georgetown has. They, their ICU is solely cardiac. But one of their nurses had just recently, Deb Trichelle, had just recently transferred from the Washington Hospital Center's burn unit because she wanted to do cardiac work, not just burn. Oh, my burn. gosh. And so, incredible. So, yeah. And so when the, the elevator's open, she goes into the, the ICU, the double doors of the ICU, And she comes into the room and the nurse tells her he's not going to look anything like, like he looked when he Mm. left this morning. She said, my head was the size of a basketball. Yeah. I'm, I'm wrapped immensely. Dr. D Simone says it's absolutely a miracle. I ran him. Dr. D Simone says, um, or I'm sorry, Dr. Plotkin, the orthopedic uh, doc. I said, I ran him through the CAT scan twice looking for broken bones, particularly because I had a huge contusion on the back of my head. Yeah. From being blown, right? From being blown, and he said, "I can find no broken bones." Um,
1: so, even with all of the damage that you had to your skin, did they um, just keep you heavily sedated, or did they end up inducing a coma with you?
2: Well, at, at at Georgetown, I'm I'm sedated. So once they, and it's the thing the the most emotional thing from September 11th is when they put that face mask over me after Mm -hmm. chaplain Cirillo's prayer. I don't want to call it last rites, but Mm
0: -hmm.
2: okay. I'm either stepping into eternity or I'm going to wake up here, but the Lord's in charge. They kept me sedated. I won't actually wake up. uh, I don't know what day it is, but it's, I think it's the 13th, but I have no sense of almost two days have gone by Mm -hmm. from when I was at Georgetown to, to now, Now, when I wake up in the burn ICU at the Washington hospital center, it's a great question, Amber, because there are two schools of thought in the burn arena while it's merciful in the short term to drug induce coma. Mm -hmm. So that people are not conscious of the, of the agony Mm -hmm. they're in.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: It keeps them from participating physically in their care. So the body atrophy, so you can either be merciful in the short term but it's going to make your recovery much longer Mm -hmm. and it's going to make it harder because the scarring you've got to fight Mm -hmm. uh, range of motion loss of muscle. I mean, I already lost muscle just from burn, but the other school of thought, which was the Dr. Jordan, Dr. Jang school of thought, they make you participate in your, Mm -hmm. your, your care. So they would make me get up, lean up, make Mm -hmm. me stand and then do a lap around the ICU nurse's station, which may have well been a, in, in that condition, was like doing a 14-mile, 80-pound yep. rucks, rucksack road march that I got to do in two hours.
1: So you had to start that like on the 13th? Yes, ma'am. Wow. And at that point, are you thinking like like, what is going through your mind as far as in I mean, how are you relating to the Lord at that point? How are you, what are your thoughts on just the whole 9-11 experience? I mean, is it I'm, just, I mean, cause I'm thinking about how angry I was.
2: Well, let me make a note here. Cause that's two things that, that you've asked that I want to, I want to address. I know, um, cause
1: I'll just talk to you forever.
2: <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I, Mel lived her wedding vows incredibly mm. because You know, there was no opportunity to talk to her on that day. Yeah. I wish I could remember when I first see her. Mm. Because with the amount of medications, things are broken and distorted in in chronological order. When things happen, there are hallucinations, not the right word, but there are things are just very physically, my memory is broken and distorted.
1: Yeah. That makes sense.
2: Emotionally, I remember very clearly the things that are emotional. Mm. And the thing that I remember most is once conscious, there is no there's no amount of pain medication other than being unconscious, anesthesia. There's no amount of pain medication <sighs> that allows you to lay there comfortably.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I remember Amber just two, three, four days into this pleading mm. for the Lord to finish it. Yeah. When Matt gets there to say goodbye and he doesn't know he's saying goodbye in my heart, I think I'm saying goodbye to him.
0: Mm.
2: Cause the, the Surgeon general of the army general peak at the time had saw Mel about one or two in the morning on September 12th. And look, my injuries were so massive that, you know, Dr. Jordan didn't tell her he's going to die. And there's a, a talent of what a doctor can tell you. That's the truth, but it's not too much truth to right. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Jordan was just fabulous. General Peak told her that you need to get Matthew up here to see his father. Matt would make that visit. And when that visit was over with, I was at that. Okay, Lord,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, it's finished. I've had the opportunity to say goodbye to my son. Let's get this over with. And then every day after that you're living, and then you're going to the tank every day and you're being scrubbed, <sighs> and you just and in the you mentioned anger. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of it right now with what's going on in Afghanistan. But when you're lowered into that, it's called the hydrotherapy room. And you oh, know I know. It, it, I'm it sorry, is, <laughs> I should not it laugh. Is, it is no spa. No, it's awful. They put you on this hard rubber bench that lowers into the side of the tank oh gosh you're butt naked with female nurses and you could care Mm -hmm. less yeah they take that rag there's a ventilator connected to my trach and only the lord can hear me scream in my mind because Mm. there's nothing coming out over my vocal cords right in those moments there's only two things i could think about and that's how much pain I was enduring. And I was like, why aren't y'all doing this to me with, and it depends on, because usually it gets scrubbed before you go to surgery. And depending upon what they're going to do in surgery, you can't mm-hmm. get, I went through five of these without anything. Really? No, no Versed, no nothing. Oh my Most goodness. of the time I would just get a Versed because if I'm going to go to the operating room, if you start mixing oh, okay. anesthesia,
1: Oh, my if gosh. You mix,
2: if you mix anesthesias, it can be toxic. Oh, my gosh. The second thing I'm thinking of is if I had the ability with a snap of my fingers to destroy the enemies of this nation, I would have. Yeah. And that's what tells you that that Christ hanging on that cross is the son of God, because it takes absolute love and absolute mm-hmm. divinity to hang on that cross with full authority. To destroy those that were doing it to him and out of obedience to the father and love of his creation endured what he endured Amen. because in before September 11th the gospel the four gospels and how they lay out the crucifixion it you know there was always movies you know old like King of Kings and other movies that kind of gloss over the you know the yeah there, you know, there's the hard a hard part scene, but but until um Passion. Passion of the Christ. You really didn't get a, this is what this was.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So the that experience gave me a much greater appreciation
0: mm-hmm.
2: for the length and the agony that the Lord endured. And in my humanness, right. that I had to snap my fingers and Afghanistan as a nation would no longer exist.
1: You know, I heard somebody say just recently that I think it was when I was listening to the book Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, and she said, you don't really know the extent that you would go to when you're really faced with your enemy, unless you've gone through the experience that brings you to that place. Basically meaning like, I don't, I don't know that I have the capacity to murder somebody unless I'm in a place where somebody does something to my kid. And I actually think that I could actually walk, you know, go through that. And so when I'm thinking about what you're saying about, you may not have thought that you could have done some horrible, horrible things to the enemy before, but when you see the agony that they've put, not only you through, but people who did lose their lives at the, at what they did, you're like, yeah, "Yeah, I could totally get rid of
2: you. May I offer one Correction, I mean the right word, but murder is not the right word here. Because remember, if taking a life in self-defense isn't murder, and remember Romans thirteen tells us that government bears the sword against those who would do evil. Mm. Now, domestically, that's done through our courts, district attorneys, the prosecutorial rules of evidence, etc. But externally there may be things related to the law for extraditions and and agreements with other nations. But for the most part, it's our department of defense that deals with bearing the sword externally. One of the things that we had a great pastor on staff, Jack Elwood, that guy on pastoral staff that mercy is not his spiritual gift. (laughs) Okay. That's the guy, that guy that you need on staff that is not the, you know, Uh, He's a, he's a, a, a Christian gunny army that, uh, you know, (laughs) somebody needs to come
1: down hard.
2: Yes. Not quite the mouth, but certainly the index finger in (laughs) chest, you know, and uh, pastor Elwood, when I I got to visit with him, I mean, I really latched onto him at the time of September 11th, I wore the hat of a soldier that, I mean, look, I'd been in the first Gulf war. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know what history your 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 listeners may know of, of the first Gulf War, but I was at the Battle of the 73rd Easting.
0: Mm.
2: Bit player in that, very bit player mm. in that, but one of the largest tank engagements since World War II. I know what violence is. yeah. And there was no joy in what we were doing, but there was pride in our professionalism of how well we had done what we did to kick Saddam out of Kuwait that our government had asked us to do, and that we had trained for that war for, for 15, 16 years. And everybody says that we won in 100 hours. Nope. It was 16 years between helicopters mm-hmm. taking off out of Saigon and the first Gulf War. So I wanted to respond as a believer that says, look, Brian Birdwell wearing his civilian hat, forgiveness is my responsibility. It is mm-hmm. not my government's. My government's duty is to protect me, not forgive on my behalf. Mm. Whether it's a district judge in a courtroom going, you've been adjudicated guilty, but I'm going to forgive you on behalf of the district that I represent as a as a district judge. That's a good point. That doesn't fly. The same thing on the on the external side. My government's duty is to protect me. If with what's going on in Afghanistan right now, I mean that I, I I'll just tell you how much my heart hurts. Mm. We've got an enemy over there and I'm not to turn our conversation all political, but it's the, it's the difference. Look, there's a reason there is a separation of church and state, not in our constitution, but in scripture, when God gives administration to Moses and the church to Aaron, there's a separation of function, not a separation of influence of faith on how we govern ourselves.
0: Mm.
2: So there's a separation of function. It's kind of like when King Uzziah, one of the good Kings goes into the temple to offer the sacraments, God immediately strikes him because the government official is doing what the, the priests are supposed That's to right. do. So there's a separation of function. So as a believer and as a citizen, my duty is to forgive, forgive, as a citizen, I want my government to protect me, and if I'm still on the battlefield as a soldier, I'm going to put relish on my enemy's hot dog, if you don't mind me saying it that way, you know, because ultimately, someday, you know, the Lord, in his first appearance, came as the lamb. Mm -hmm. In his second appearance, Revelation 19 calls him what? The commander of the armies of heaven. So, there's a difference of function in his first arrival and his second one that will come.
1: Well, so tell me though, because now, I mean, you went through more than 26 surgeries. Is that correct?
2: Uh, 39, 39. Specifically related to, but I've, I've since been to the operating room. I've been counting. Um, I've been to the operating room 51 times, but 39 of them uh, specifically related to that uh. Four and years the, the majority, company.
1: I was going to say the majority of those were in that first four years, correct?
2: Correct. Like, yes. Ma'am. Right yeah. after 39. Yes, ma'am.
1: And so what, what is it like for you even now with mobility? Um, because I know as, like I said, being in the healthcare world, how hard it can no, be. No, you're get... in the
2: torture world. You're not in the healthcare <laughs> world. You're in the torture <laughs> world. So. <laughs> My, Look, husband's gonna this, she, but, my husband's going to love this because my husband's
1: like, you have no compassion. I'm like, I do. I just want you to get better.
2: Well, I would tell you that if, if you were like, Amy was my, my primary physical therapist, what made it so tough wasn't just my injuries, but she was also pregnant. So depending upon what mood she was in, <laughs> oh man, but, but I also know that, it, that I told him, I said, if y'all are ever burned and you have to endure Call me. what you're doing. You'll never come back and do this. Oh. Once you know physically what you're doing to somebody, yeah. you'll never be able to do it again.
1: My husband's not had burns, but he's had five knee surgeries on the same knee. And it's interesting oh, that yeah. you say that because he's even like, if you had gone through what I've gone through with like PTs and my knee, I don't know if you would do this. And I'm like, well, I mean, you should probably yeah. be glad somebody will because.
2: It, yeah, because it's tough love. But Well, ex- I, that, I, well that's me. what I
1: was going to say though with burn is, you don't just get your range of motion back. And if someone's not pushing you, you are turning into someone who cannot move. And so, um, you know, I'm just curious now, like what are some of the, um, long-term effects that you have experienced really physically?
2: Yeah. Well, I know you can, your, your listeners can't see me, but you can see me on zoom here, but you know, I can't pronate and supinate at the wrist. I mean, I I can Okay, not at I all. I can go I yeah, I took like when I get my change at, at the convenience store, I cut my hands. Yeah. Uh cut them cuz I can I can
1: And what what he means when he says pronate and supinate is just turning your hands up towards the ceiling and turning your hands down towards the floor. Yep.
2: Yeah. And so uh, at the drive-through, uh, I usually have to grab the the, any dollars I'm getting back and change. And then I'll stick my arm out and put my hand. I don't know okay. if you can see what I'm doing, yeah. but, but I stick my hand out and they put it in my palm and then I pull it in that way. Okay. All, my, all the doors here at my house have levers. And in fact, it's, it's something of a funny story. Um, this past session, there's a, a restroom off the Senate floor. That's not in the Senator's lounge. I usually go there if I need to go to the restroom but I quickly hurried to, to get back out on the floor and it's got a knob. Oh no. And, and for whatever reason, knobs are hard for me to grip and they're too slick.
1: Well, yeah. Um, and then you don't have that pronation supination and you have to use that.
2: And so I have to use both hands to try to get the door. And so I, I was, I came out of the restroom and then the door that takes you into the hallway is that knob door. I wasn't, locked in. But let's say I was a bit delayed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, my hearing is terrible. Um, yeah. I've got I've got another new version of hearing aids. And then as I age, what, what Dr. Jordan told me is that as I age, I'm aging not from normal. I mean, I'm 59 turned 60 in November. But with my injuries, and the I'm, I'm in a, you know, 69, 70 year old body. Um, the effects of my aging are more profound Mm -hmm. and someday with my lung injuries, I'm sure I'll be on an oxygen tank, even though I've never, you know, smoked a cigarette, I've got the lungs of a 20 year smoker. And it's kind of funny when I go to the doctor, you know, I get a new, if I have to go see a new doctor for some ailment, you know, um, and Dr. Flournoy, my, my family doc sends me somewhere and I have to fill out the medical history, you know, and it says, do you smoke? And I yeah. put yes once for about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Oh, and so, so that's
1: anyway. hilarious. People are probably like, "What?" And then you, t- yeah. if you tell them, and they're like, they, "Oh,
0: oh, okay."
1: So yeah. Well, it was 2010 when you stepped in. Well, at, you were elected um, yes, as ma'am. a Texas senator, and so as we close out here how would you say, and you've shared a little bit, but your experience on 9-11 and your healing journey and, you know, your faith journey, how would you say that it impacts your role as senator?
2: I'd always been politically aware, uh, very civic
1: citizenship-minded,
2: yeah. uh, particularly, you know, when when you're in the service. And, you know, I always, right. we always made sure that you know, even after Mel and I got married, we always voted absentee, whether we were in Germany or where, you know, or stateside, you know, we always voted back in our home district in, in Texas, because um, that's very important that, you right. know, you're civically minded, because remember, scripture tells us, Exodus 18, 20, choose ye righteous men such that fear God, that hate dishonest gain, to be leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, so if, if we Christians are going to be salt and light in the culture, you got to open the shaker up and, you know, you got to hit the flip, the, the light switch. You got to flip the switch, because if you just simply just sit back and, and go to church, but don't engage in who your leadership is, then you get the culture we're, we're getting in many respects right now.
1: Well, and so before you go on with that, because this is the thing I would ask with that and, and you can or cannot answer is because. I know exactly what you're saying. But then when you're talking about earlier, like the separation of, you know, function, it's hard to know how to do that. Like your function as a citizen and then your function in a political role, let, you know, I mean, so much of what I believe determines how I work, act, live.
2: Right. There's things about how I work, how I live, what's truth, what's moral Mm -hmm. and what's not that center of gravity is all biblical based. Yeah. Now we may win or lose battles on how people have voted, the voted to elect the people that represent them and how those people vote. And we submit ourselves to that authority. I mean, look, the best mm-hmm. thing about representative Republic is we get to choose, you know, our, all of our Caesars that are in the, the, on the district benches and in the legislature and our governor, we also get to choose our, our president, but it's, it's very similar to what the ninth and 10th amendment are in the federal constitution in that it's not just what's the function between church and state
0: mm-hmm.
2: or the family. Cause remember the Lord creates, remember how scripture says all things were created through him and nothing was created without him. So it's not just the periodic table of the elements that the mm. Lord created. It's not just every, everything in the animal kingdom and the, the, uh, the plant kingdom and, and, and the right. like, but he created three institutions. His first institution is marriage, with Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis nine, um, we begin Noahic law after the after the flood. That is eventually formalized. So you have the beginnings of civil government in Genesis, <laughs> and then it's formalized more greatly with Moses and Aaron, where God has created the administrative government function and role and the church's role. So the three institutions are marriage, family, government, church, which one has what responsibility for what? So when we have questions about, you know, when people say, you know, what about this relating to education? That's a parent's job, not the state's job, Mm. or that's this person's job. Because if everything gets gathered to government, while those are government functions, spoken about in the ninth and 10th Amendment. It's a separation of function between what authority belongs to the state governments and lower versus Mm -hmm. what authority belongs to the federal government. And so having that worldview of who's really responsible for this, private sector, businesses, private property, they get to decide, family. I mean, I don't want to get into a, a, a long diatribe, but as it relates to, uh, uh, to life. My duty is to protect life. Now people will mm-hmm. say, well, you know, well, what about the death penalty? I'm like, there's a between innocent life and guilty life, that innocent life in the womb. And when people say, you know, well, you shouldn't be telling people what they can or cannot do with their body, but it's like, but that's a life. That's not simply a, you know, mm-hmm. a limb. That's a whole nother life with a soul. Mm-hmm. And so, when you have that biblical world view of how what's right and wrong, because look, there are there are challenges. There, the ectopic pregnancy
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, or a pregnancy that is during a a malady like a cancer or something that that the treatment for the mother to survive yeah. may kill or you know. So in those circumstances, if your choice is less death or more death, you always want less death if yeah. your choice is life or death, you always want
0: life.
2: life. But if I've got enemies out there, government's duty is to bear that sword. Mm. I don't get to get pick up the bayonet and go chase down Osama bin Laden and, and take care of justice of my own accord. There's a process by which our government picks up that sword mm. and does so very carefully, judiciously, and to make sure that Anybody that thinks about trifling with an American on the battlefield, you will lose your life because you're an enemy. You're not a citizen. I mean, mm-hmm. even Pontius Pilate gets citizenship, right. When he tells, when he says he's a Galilean, send him to Herod. He is Herod's problem. He's a mm. Galilean.
1: That's that is so interesting. Yeah. It's assigning to the proper person or proper authority, the proper authority to make decisions.
2: Right. So it, whether it's mm. what's a federal decision, what's a state decision, I try to give the greatest amount of discretion to subordinate geopolitical subdivisions as a state senator. So the school districts and counties, cities, water mm. development boards, I mean, all the different you know geopolitical right. folks out mm-hmm. there that are subordinate to the state. Our founders understood that because they did not want all that power consolidated and and now we've got folks that are that are, you know, wanting to tell Christians that you have to participate in something that that God tells you is is an immoral abomination.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Remember what the Declaration says. Most people stop at the, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Most people stop there. That's not where it stops. That sentence continues. And that to protect these rights, governments are instituted among men. The three the three branches of government come out of Isaiah 32 or 33, 32. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. The Lord is our judge. And the only guy that can ever hold all three of those functions simultaneously is the Lord. Yeah. Because he's the only person that's not a fallen, sinful individual. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, our founders separated those functions to ensure that there was always a check on those functions.
1: Wow. Well, I think you actually answered that question very well. Well, I know it was (laughs) a long way around the
2: barn, but.
1: I mean, I'll be honest with you. That really just helped me think through some things in my own brain that sometimes, you know, I don't really have language for. Um, Mm. Yeah. So I appreciate that. And I'm grateful for the way that you're serving our country and our family. And most of all, and the way that you're serving our Lord.
2: Well, thank you, Amber. I, I very much appreciate it.
1: I would like to close this week's episode with one of the prayers From the free download at graceenoughpodcast.com, 10 Scripture Prayers to Calm Your Anxious Heart. This one comes from Psalm 57.1. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. O God, We take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Hide us there and pour out your mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.